you know, it was a strange, it was a strange experience. I was about as far from Ukraine as you could be on the Eurasian continent, really. I was, uh, I was closer to Vancouver marginally than Kiev or Moscow. I was like right up in the very far Northeast of Russia, uh, minding my own business on a hike. Um, but, uh, while I was in that part of the world, um, Russia invaded Ukraine and then being a Westerner in Russia became quite a different thing than what it had been, you know, a few weeks earlier. Um, so after a couple of months of sort of, you know, getting by doing my, doing my hiking along this frozen river, um, I was arrested and, uh, it wasn't formally an accusation of espionage, but it was sort of the next best thing. They said I'd, um been photographing restricted military sites and conducting um, uh, illegal journalism in Russia. In this podcast, I'm going to be exploring what it takes to live a life full of adventure and freedom. I'll be interviewing adventurers, explorers and business owners who have set their life up to have an abundance of choice. And I'm also going to give you the high performance tips and tricks I teach my adventurepreneur clients to have the kind of life they want and be the type of person they wish they were. So if you're not already, subscribe to the show and settle in for another episode of The Freedom Project. When asked why risk it all to be the first person to climb Everest, George Mallory responded with a mysterious answer that speaks to so many explorers, adventurers and mountaineers. Because it is there. There's something in many of us adventurers that looks at the magnificent peak as a writer looks at a blank page, It is beckoning to be explored, to bear witness to our striving and creativity, a blank canvas to hone our character. Journeys to illogical and unnecessary kindle a flame in our heart, an ancient mythical call to adventure. But why? Honestly, I'm unsure. I believe that if someone asks that question, they will never truly understand. Personally speaking, adventure provides me with the opportunity to slay my personal dragons, to tap into the attributes that lie in reserve, and to connect to something more real than reality itself. It's a psychedelic trip without the exogenous substance. In today's conversation with adventurer, author, and speaker, Charlie Walker, you learn the lessons from someone who has spent years and years on adventures that do all of the aforementioned. What's more, you'll also discover how not to lose your mind if you're locked up in a Russian prison on charges of espionage. What personality traits Charlie wishes he could keep that vanish when he's home from adventures. The ubiquitous character who found Charlie in every single corner of the world. How to plan adventures that transform your soul and so, so much more. I adored this conversation with Charlie. Great guy, great conversationalist, and I thoroughly hope you enjoy the wonderful Charlie Walker. So let's start in the obvious place. How's the spying in Ukraine going? Uh, no comment at this Good time. time. Good question. Now that's a that's a crazy story. Uh, the fact that you got pinged for that. Yeah, it was. Um, you know, it was a strange. It was a strange experience. I was about as far from Ukraine as you could be on the Eurasian continent, really. I was uh, I was closer to Vancouver marginally than Kiev or Moscow. I was like right up in the very far northeast of Russia, 
uh, minding my own business on a hike. Um, but uh, while I was in that part of the world, um, Russia invaded Ukraine and then being a Westerner in Russia became quite a different thing than what it had been, you know, a few weeks earlier. Um, so after a couple of months of sort of, you know, getting by, doing my doing my hiking along this frozen river, um, I was arrested and uh, it wasn't formally an accusation of espionage, but it was sort of the next best thing. They said I'd... Um, been photographing mili- restricted military sites and conducting um, uh, illegal journalism in Russia, uh, which by that point was, uh, you know, sort of potentially punishable by up to 15 years. So that was a strange time. Yeah, not going to lie to you. Yeah. Like, how do you think about risks like that? And to give you some context, I'm planning a trip to very rural Pakistan soon get out into the mountains and security is something i've just come off a conversation with a security consultant like what things should i be aware of how do you consider the security risk the from everything from those what's the phrase high frequency low impact things to the the opposite of that with those big life-changing events um i don't think i approach it quite that formally if i'm honest um i I think I've got a fairly good appetite for risk. Um, but that is definitely something that, you know, changes. Um, I'm in my mid thirties now when I was in my early twenties, it was, you know, it, it almost wasn't even a consideration. I was quite cavalier. Um, I would charge into things and just, you know, sort of <laughs> grip my teeth and hope for the best. Um, nowadays I'm not quite so gung ho, but, um, I think once I've conceived an idea that I'm really keen on, there'll have to be quite a strong reason to stop me from doing it. Um, to use the example we were talking about just there, um, I conceived this idea to go to, to the Arctic in Siberia and hike along this frozen river and visit the indigenous people living up there. It became a slightly different prospect as the uh, Russian troops started building up along the border of Ukraine in the weeks prior to my departure, but not to the point where it seemed impossible. Um, and so I suppose also when you're, when you're contemplating risk, there's the likelihood of the bad thing happening. Then there's also the severity of the bad thing. And if I'm completely honest, before before Russia kind of launched that invasion and changed internally, you know, domestically and internationally, uh, the the bad thing that could have happened was, you know, it wasn't that bad. You know, back at that point, people who got into trouble pissing around in Russia would be deported. And I mean, ultimately, that is what happened to me just via a slightly sort of long and frightening process. Um, so it didn't seem that risky i suppose when you make a, a risk um what do they call it a risk matrix you kind of plot on the x and the y axis the different you know mm-hmm. potential risk with whatever it is you're doing and then you try and work out on that axis how likely it is and how dangerous it is and things that are very very likely but not very dangerous are fine things that are very very dangerous but not very likely are fine and it's the things that are somewhere in the middle which is where you've got to start considering what your taste for things is is and that is a very long over sort of um, over formalized way of saying I don't consider these things as much as I should. <laughs> have you got family, kids, like partner? Uh, I have a partner. I don't have kids. Yeah. 
what did your partner think about this? Um, well, she, I mean, she's, I think, off to the West Bank next week. Um, okay. She's a journalist and does okay. these sorts of things Fairly for, for well. some actual purpose herself, um, as opposed to me going off on my on my adventures, which is, uh, you know, arguably a slightly more pointless pursuit. Uh, so, yeah. Um, but then again, I think she, I think it would probably be fair to say she has a slightly more uh, sense oriented handle on the risks I take than I do. Okay, got you. When's that? Is that the the kind of biggest surprise on that risk matrix in Russia? Um, I suppose it probably was. I mean, I when I drew up, so I had to, you know, I had funding for that trip uh, through a grant. I did have to draw up a formal risk assessment, which is always a good idea to do with things that have you know inherent risks. Um, and on it, uh, you know, political instability was a whole section that I that I went through and um i can't remember the details of it this is a while back now but i can only assume that on that uh on that assessment it would have said there is the chance that you know that i'll get kicked out of russia i I just i don't think i by the time i actually left the invasion of ukraine had become foreseeable because there were about one hundred ninety thousand troops uh sort of you know teetering on along the border but no one really thought I say no one, American intelligence and therefore British intelligence did think there was going to be an invasion, but very few other kind of parts of the world or the media did think that there was going to be an an actual full-scale invasion. Um, So I just did not foresee uh, the situation change as much as it did. Once the war began, I there was a a window of time where I could have got out if I'd chosen to, but being three and a half thousand miles away, from what was happening it just sort of felt like a safety buffer like you know that kind of low proximity was um comforting i suppose even though of course i was in the russian state um i just happened to be twice as close to the north pole as to uh to the front line um yeah so it, it definitely came as a surprise i mean it it, it <laughs> in reality it wasn't the most frightening thing that's ever happened to me but it was definitely the most sustained time that I've been afraid you know I spent weeks wondering if I was gonna end up spending years in a cell um whereas there have been times that have been much more viscerally terrifying um you know being trapped under water in rapids for you know three quarters of a minute or something during the last you know, during most of that time, you become increasingly convinced that you're about to die that very second. So the the kind of the immediacy of that terror is a very different experience to the kind of grueling slow burn of um, kind of contemplating long yeah, incarceration. You've got time to think, haven't you, in, in that scenario? And you've got, I'm guessing, very little to do where you have the opportunity for your mind to wander. Exactly. Yeah. And, and it's, and it's a sort of, um, it's a situation where your mind can be your best coping mechanism or at other times your worst enemy. Um, I mean, I'm trying to write about this, trying to, I am writing about this at the moment. Um, you know, I've been doing that all day and, you know, I'm currently at the point of the book where I'm in a cell and there are days where I get some ray of hope and, uh, things that on other days would sort of send me into another spiral of 
not panic, but I suppose paranoia and pessimism about the odds of getting out uh, wouldn't face me on those days. And then there are other days when I wake up, you know, either not well, you know, the, you know, your health isn't especially good there. The food's awful. Um, there are certain days where just some little trigger would send me into a totally different pattern. And then you start to, you know, when, when a guard appears at the door and demands you put your hands through the hatch and they cuff you and they lead you downstairs, that could mean, oh, I'm about to get released. Or that could mean, oh, I'm about to be taken back to court and retried on more serious charges. And, you know, that would happen every few days for various different reasons. Um, and, you know, th- my reaction to that was totally different depending on my frame of mind uh, on any given day. Yeah. Did you learn any techniques for want to a better word? Did anything help? Did anything like, ameliorate the stress and anxiety of it? Uh, definitely. Um, I mean, the main thing was just keeping as busy as possible. Um, I, for the first couple of weeks, I shared a cell with, um, a guy from Kyrgyzstan and a Ukrainian and, um, the Ukrainian by that point had been in prison for about two years. Um, the Kyrgyz guy had only been there a month, but they were both at different stages in what seemed to be kind of a cycle of, uh, you know, good and bad uh levels of coping that is um and there were you know both of them had reached the point where they were sleeping for uh, 15 16 hours a day which is incredibly like psychologically incredibly unhealthy i believe there were people who know who will know much more about that than than i do but they would sleep for for that amount of time and while they're awake they would be just irritable and they wouldn't do any exercise. Whereas I'd be pacing up and down the cell and trying to do sit-ups and you know whatever else, just to try and make myself a little bit tired by the evening. So I would, you know, sleep a bit better for a shorter period of time. Um, but they would, they would get frustrated roughly at the same time every day and start kind of storming around the room, trying to break things or, you know, screaming. Um, whereas when, when you, get on top of things, keep yourself as busy as possible, keep yourself as active as possible. I mean, it's really, it's kind of obvious. It's, it seems quite basic and that that's not any judgment from me on them and how they were dealing with it. They were each going through their own thing that was, that was, you know, I guess overlapping with, but totally different to my own, you know, experience. Um, so yeah, I, I, thankfully I managed to get some, get hold of some books from a friend who delivered them English books, which was key. Um, so I'd read a lot. I had a Rubik's cube. I did a lot of that. Um, I did my little exercises. I made some dice out of bread. Um, when I was still sharing, sharing a cell before I got moved into my, into a sort of a a solo cell, um, I made a a drafts or a checkers board with, um, the little paper, different colored paper toggles from tea bags that we get with our meals. Um, and just, you know, anything to keep busy, even the most sort of petty mundane things to occupy your mind. Like I, I, it became a bit of an obsession of mine. I had no way of telling the time. And so I didn't know what time meals were coming or, you know, it's, it's, you have a vague idea what time of day it is, of course, but, um, it's a bit frustrating not knowing is there an hour or three hours until we get some dinner. Um, so I started being able to use the frames of windows as essentially sundials tracking the progress of the sun across the floor and the walls of the cell through the day across the different sort of squares of tiling on the cell floor. Um, things like that were, you know, sort of kind of pointless pursuits, but it was just minutiae to distract and sort of engage yourself with and avoid, um, I guess, sort of listlessness and senselessness. Was it? worse being with people who are actively depressed in that situation and or is it 
worse not having the company? hundred uh, percent worse being with people not having a good time. Really? I mean, <laughs> I should clarify that. No one's having a good time. Yeah, um, well, you weren't partying. Yeah. I mean, even the guards, they weren't having a good time. Yeah. Um, no, I, I much preferred being in a cell by myself. Um, that was a big, big relief getting moved there. I was, uh, you know, I, I worried initially that was going to be harder, but it, it definitely wasn't. When you're with, I mean, I, I, I struggled to sort of fight it off myself, but when you're, this isn't, you know, this is applicable to, to life in general. When you're around, it all sounds so cliche because it is so obvious, but when you're around negativity, it is it is infectious and it is quite, and as is positivity. Mm-hmm. Um, and it can definitely, you know, it can impact and nudge your, your mood and your state of mind. And I, you know, I found it, it not just difficult, but sometimes intimidating when, you know, when they got in a, a bad mood and started storming around. I thought, well, like, you know, I don't know, to what level of desperation or frustration or kind of irrational rage these guys might work themselves up into. Um, yeah, we weren't allowed shoelaces or belts in the cell for fairly obvious reasons. Um, and, you know, when, whenever that's a possibility, that does make you think a bit. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. I'm guessing compared to the average modern Westerner, you're more comfortable alone anyway. Yeah, arguably I'm more comfortable in my own company than uh, than in company. Um, and, and after any period of isolation, uh, sort of reintegration is always a bit of a process for me. It does yeah. take a bit of a, t- a bit of time. Um, but yeah, I am. I'm. There's. It took me a while to learn how to be comfortable by myself and to appreciate the kind of the space and time and, and peace that um, that solitude can bring. Um, and again, that's sort of, you know, two sides of the coin, solitude and loneliness. And it's just trying to kind of frame and interpret and therefore experience, uh, being by oneself as solitude rather than loneliness as a positive kind of, you know, opportunity rather than a, you know, a cripplingly lonely experience. Yeah. Yeah. I can imagine. Have you, I'm sure you've heard of, but do you know Erling Kag? yes yeah yeah his story about taking the batteries out of his radio on the way to the south pole on his solo walk to the south pole is is crazy it always blows my mind that someone would go i'm going to leave these batteries here so i can't in the plane so i can't be contactable for i I, I didn't actually know that story that's um that's cool i mean it fits with um i read his book silence a couple of years ago um and that was great um i mean i've never uh, you know, sort of taking the batteries out and plunged into 80 days without any form of sort of distraction. Um, I've never done a silent retreat or anything like that, but I do impose on myself. I mean, nowadays I, you know, I, I travel with my phone, which is also a camera and it's all, it's quite handy. Uh, I didn't used to, I used to just have an old iPod and when that ran out of batteries, it might be days or even a couple of weeks or whatever until I could charge it up. Uh, and I, I went like that for several years. Um, but I do impose quite strict sort of rules on myself or limits as to how long I will let myself listen to the pre-downloaded podcasts or audiobooks or whatever it is that I've that I've kind of banked on there to provide me some entertainment and distraction or, you know, learning uh, while I'm while I'm away. So if you know, if I'm if I've got a whole day of hiking or kayaking or whatever it is ahead, um it, it'll vary from trip to trip and time to time, but perhaps I'll allow myself, you know, an hour and a half at some point during the morning, but not for the first hour, let's say. Why? Uh, because I think it's a slippery slope. You know, if you, and I have, you know, 
at times when younger I have uh, before I started to consider this in itself um, I have kind of gone through periods where you know you wake up in your tent by yourself lovely you know peaceful place wherever you are whacked in your earphones and listen to something while you prepare your breakfast and then the same thing is still on while you're kind of you know getting getting going for the day and then come lunchtime you realize that you've just been plugged in and you've been passively receiving rather than actively thinking uh for perhaps five six hours by that point and that's that's not necessarily a bad thing but it seems like a wasted opportunity because one of the great um I was going to say advantages, but probably privileges of being able to go away and spend time by oneself in, you know, tranquil surroundings, even if they are blisteringly cold or, you know, unpleasantly hot, um, is to to kind of, you know, gaze into the, the, the own sort of vortex that are our slightly compu- confusing or complicated minds and allow them to run off in tangents while you're meditatively, meditatively, hiking or skiing or whatever it might be um it's a really good opportunity to to kind of i guess explore and process thoughts and ideas in a way that you just you it's not that you never would during normal life but you're much less likely to oh it's so convenient standard life you must get that when you get back to london and you plug your headphones in and it's easy to get everywhere and like everything's convenient and food and comfort and heat and aircon and water and all those things must be so convenient you must be overwhelmed when you get back to reality well reality society western world so yeah sometimes i mean i definitely agree with you know how how luxurious the lifestyle of you know the kind of average citizen with any disposable income is in the modern West. It's, you know, it's almost unimaginable from a historical perspective, how comfortable, you know, let's say two or 3 billion people are in the world. Um, But at the same time, almost shockingly, when I do get back, firstly, if you've, if you've had to fly to get away and get back, the flight is this kind of this process of reintegration where you're confused about what time it is and what day it is and what country you're in and what airport you're traipsing through and you know standing by a conveyor belt gazing glumly as all these bags go past that aren't yours and just kind of going slightly cross-eyed after going through that whole process which maybe is only half a day maybe it's three days depending on where you sort of you know come back from by the time i get home i'm i'm shocked by how instantly i am exactly who I was and how I was before I left, give or take the fact that I might have lost, you know, some kilograms. Um, it, 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 it's surprising how quickly you kind of not necessarily forget the the kind of learnings, the lessons, the experiences that you've just had, but how quickly you sort of shed the the habits that um, that you develop. Yeah, I remember this feeling of doing the very cliched six months of traveling after a um, <clears throat> after a um, after sixth form. Did the classic loop that everyone from the UK seems to do: Southeast Asia down to Australia, New Zealand, Fiji. That that loop, and I really felt at the age of nineteen or eighteen, whatever I was at the time, that I came back and I was like, I'm a different person now. And I got on the plane, and I remember thinking, Oh no. I'm it's that version of me again and that snap back to reality there seems to be like this kind of 
default setting maybe it's the more ingrained version of you maybe it's the one that you've had more time experiencing yeah i think we also we are reactive to and receptive to our surroundings and when you lapse back into familiar surroundings you lapse you lapse back into the familiar character i mean we've definitely all got a, a level of sort of um flexibility within who we are and how we are at any given time whether that's subconscious or sometimes conscious um and i think getting back you just very quickly relax back into who you are or how you react around all the things and the people that you are around whereas when you're away there are less um tethers less kind of familiar triggers to which you or, or perhaps from which you form your current sort of state of being i guess um and that is uh, liberating. That version of you when you're away, is there anything that you wish you could like drag into your your existence when you're at home? Mm. That's a good question. I mean, one is I would like to do as much exercise, you know, at all points in my life as I do when I'm away on an expedition, but it's just not feasible from a time perspective. You know, this morning I went out for my run in the rain but I've got a day of work to get done at a desk sitting, you know, on a chair. I haven't got a fat stand up desk. You know, there's, <laughs> I do live a much more sedentary lifestyle when I'm, or much of the time when I'm back in the UK than I would like to. And so that habit is for the time being, at least not something that I, I know it's not something I can kind of inject into my normal life, but the, um, and this comes back to what we touched on just a few minutes ago, the amount of thinking I do when I'm away uh, that isn't sort of encumbered by the mundanities that we have to encounter in day-to-day -day life is something that I would like to do more of when I'm back. You know, I, I, I think more, I read more, I think I broach topics in a more abstract way. I think I have a, it's not necessarily clarity of thought, I think actually when I'm back at home, I have quite clear thought. It's just on a much smaller range of topics. Uh, I think I miss the kind of experimental and probably just more flexible state of mind that I find myself in when I'm in a, away in a different environment and a different culture. Yeah, just kind of comparing my own limited experience in comparison to you, but spent fair amount of time in the mountains and in avalanche drain and a little bit mountaineering here and there and like i've been away in some interesting places too and the the perspective i have of there's firstly the the very clear objective for the day i want to walk from here to here or i've got to admin my kit or i've got to set up camp in a place that i'm not going to fall through a frozen lake or something like that it's like mm -hmm. clear objectives don't die do the thing but there's also like a a widened horizon where you take in your peripheral vision at the same time. It's almost like you look around and you're not so like focused on the minutiae that you become when you're writing or working or like, or at a desk. Yeah. And I think that might come down to the fact that our, our to-do list when we are, for, not for everyone, but for a lot of people in modern life, your to-do list in day-to-day -day life is, firstly, it's sedentary, but secondly, it's this kind of, it's this, it's a bunch of different things at the same time. 
I think. And uh, all of those things are competing with each other. Whereas when you've got your, um, you know, that list you mentioned just now, your, you know, item one, get from A to B, while doing item one, you've got time to maybe item two, think about other stuff. And then at the end of the day, item three, you know, sit with a needle and thread and stitch some repair and you have clothes that are falling apart or whatever. Mm. It's just, it's much more simple. It's much more broken down. You can't, uh, you're, you're not sort of, I don't know. I, I find day to day that I am constantly trying to multitask and like be more efficient and not in a sort of necessarily a glamorous way that people at conferences might talk about where you, you know, yeah, call him, do that, sell this, buy that. Not, none of that at all. It's just like uh, when I walk through the kitchen, <laughs> is there something that needs to be picked up and go upstairs with me on that way? And just like constantly clutter. There's just, there's so there's just more things, there's more mm-hmm. stuff and all of that takes up thought space i think whereas when you're away you have less things you do less things and everything you do i think you do to a greater level of depth do you feel you're more you when you're away hmm interesting that raises a lot of questions i guess i'm definitely a different me um i'm not sure if i not sure if i feel confident like i say i'm a a better a more more me i guess that brings into question what me is and i suppose you know it's that i mean with that question do you take the 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 true you to be the you that you are the majority of the time or the you that you want to be or the you that you are in some sort of innate sense because i don't really know who any of those are for me (laughs) yeah yeah that, that, that is probably the question isn't it like the what am i what's the experiencer of these things and you can't really put your finger on it but there's definitely a way of living that is aligned with this the type of person i am like if you put me in a suit and sent me to new york city and asked me to trade strokes i'm sure i could manage it just and learn how to do it but it definitely wouldn't feel stable like i was walking on solid ground it'd feel mm-hmm. like i was doing someone else's life yes um True. I guess I feel, I probably feel out of my depth, if this has anything to do with it, more in sort of quote unquote normal life than I do when I'm off doing something, even if that thing involves elements of, you know, uh, doing scary things or being in some sense physically out of my depth. But day to day life is so confusing and there are so many things that are expected of you or that you expect of yourself um, that you know, I, imposter syndrome is a big part of, I think, most people's lives. If it isn't, then potentially that's an issue as well. <laughs> um, but, you know, I do a lot of public speaking. You know, each year, several dozen times, I get up in front of an audience and I, I talk to them. And it's for all sorts of different reasons. Sometimes it's to inspire. Sometimes it's to entertain. Sometimes it's to impart messages. But, um, you know, not always, but for a lot of those times, I will, you know, question at some point before, during and or afterwards, am I the right person to be saying this? Who am I to tell other people anything, really? That's why I feel more comfortable, perhaps, with trying to sort of, you know, entertain and tell stories than to impart wisdom, because, uh, firstly, wisdom is probably subjective. But secondly, the things that I find uh, wise and important don't necessarily overlap with what other people do. 
Um, and I've spoken long enough now to forget the question, um, which again shows <laughs> my clarity of purpose. <laughs> You've spoken long enough for me to forget the, the question as well, which is all good. You strike me as someone that's quite philosophical in your approach to life, um, like thinking about reasons. Has that always been the case? Um, I think I'll probably go through phases on that front and, uh, I mean, in this case, it's, I mean, we're, we're having a conversation along these lines to some extent, you know, you ask the right questions and you, you trigger the kind of the, the thoughts and the questions in return. Um, I mean, I've, I've read quite varied sort of books and read relatively wisely and, and through, sorry, not wisely, widely, um, and through, uh, through university each, I, I studied English and, um, classics, but as part of classics each year, I did one module in, uh, ancient philosophy. So I've never studied any modern philosophy at all, but I found, uh, the kind of the, the, the obsession with and the investigation into how we think, uh, by the ancients really interesting. Um, and that's my only grounding in philosophy besides, I guess, you know, a few books that, that touch on the topic or more sort of pop philosophy books from, from more recent times. But, um, I've never been too phased about why we are, but how we are, I find very interesting. And that must, that must be a question that comes into your vision or your awareness whilst you're, whilst you're away for periods of time. Uh, yes. I mean, it, arguably it's mental masturbation when you're just by yourself. <laughs> um, yeah, it, it certainly does perhaps more so when I am not alone, but I am away. So i.e., when I encounter other people, interesting people, different people from different, you know, lives and backgrounds. Um, I suppose from my perspective, particularly with regard to faith, I've always found faith very interesting. I don't have faith anymore i you know i was raised um not you know zealously religious but i was definitely raised with with belief and religion and you know sort of moved away from that in my sort of teenage years as i think many if not most people in britain seem to have done as it as it turns out every census comes out with less and less people having any sort of religious grounding but i find it really interesting um the idea of not having faith is is incredibly niche if you look at it from a global perspective so pretty much wherever you go in the world there will be a sort of faith of some sort and seeing how that informs people's uh perception on why we live life how we should live life what a good life is um i find that really interesting the the fact that i mean stories are the best you know, probably without doubt, stories are the best way to learn anything. And every religion is just a story or a series of stories, often contradicting each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the the power that a story can have to impart incredible, you know, positivity and, and humanity and quite the opposite. Uh, I mean, I, I probably focus on and look at the extremes in this case more than necessary or more than is healthy um but it's it's been something i've always found very very interesting um so that's a long way around to saying that when i'm when i'm away the 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 majority of my thought into that kind of topic will often be tied in with with looking at a religion anywhere 
If you're an adventurepreneur and you want more freedom to do more cool shit, then I want to help you do that. Every month, I take on a maximum of three new clients into my high-performance adventurepreneur program. This is a completely bespoke, personal, and deep-dive program giving you complete freedom, teaching you high-performance mastery. It's application and invite only, and I accept only those who are the best fit for the program. To apply for your space, head to my Instagram, Tom Foxley, F-O-X-L-E-Y, and send me a message with the word interested. It's interesting that pull from organized religion, like away from faith. This is my journey. I'm guessing I'm going to overlay what you've experienced with just my story and batty like your experience with mine. Um, I brought up in like uh, in a like school environment, Church of England, and it was very much forced down your throat as a dogmatic organized religion of this is what to believe. I remember one Mm -hmm. teacher saying, "Well, if you don't believe in God, Tom." you can't come to the school anymore. I was like, oh, okay, we're like eight years old. And so like that was my conception of faith for for a while. Like if faith like is is believing that kind of religion. And then as I've gone away from it, um, and uh, just like, oh, you, you got me? Sorry, yeah, you cut out yeah. for a few seconds there. But... Uh, okay, sweet, perfect. Um, so yeah, as I got kind of pulled away from religion um, and or made that decision to, to go, no, that's not for me, I kind of, found myself erring away from it but eventually i found myself kind of like questioning and maybe thinking about something a little bit more and maybe it's just experimentation with psychedelics infrequently that's made me think about it but there's there's like there's a something within humans that goes there's something more to this and something more than meets the eye in my experience anyway yeah i mean i i I think that's hard to hard to argue with um, I, I completely don't disagree. It's firstly, there's, there's certain logic to that thinking. Secondly, it seems only natural and human to kind of want to be part of something bigger or to, uh, you know, we as a species look for patterns in everything. You know, that's, I mean, I, that's probably one of those, um, what's the phrase, evolutionarily hardwired parts of how we think, you know, we see shapes in clouds, we see snakes on the ground when they aren't there, we like, we find shapes and patterns from nature and trying to um, sort of find a, a logic um, sort of within uh, the, the kind of the supra realm as well totally makes sense. Um, I... I mean, I suppose what's interesting about it is that uh, very rarely do people change religion. Um, Hmm. And so, of course, we basically have inherited the attempts from from our ancestors in whatever part of the world we might have grown up in or whatever community we might have grown up in. We have inherited the attempts of someone who has come before to impose a system of logic on the world. Uh, It's just because religions tend to be um, imparted in a dogmatic sense rather than a sort of explorative sense, like something like philosophy, for example, which is another way of trying to understand how the world works. Um, there's a there's a sort of a more powerful, longer lasting adherence, perhaps. Yeah, like a questioning and curiosity. When mm. you think back to the people that you've met, like you, you've what well, you've cycled forty three thousand miles around the world, you've spent years and years accumulated away. Who stands out in that time? <sighs> I mean, lots and lots of 
people is I mean, <laughs> it's a hard question I'm trying I mean there's there's the sort of there's one particular character that I've seen or met time and time again over the years in many many countries all over the world and that suggests almost there's a homogeneity there which is not my point here but there is the total stranger who has waved me down on the side of the road um engaged in sort of threadbare conversation due to language difference and we've sat down there on the side of the road or in their home on the side of the road and drunk tea and eaten a couple of biscuits or sweets uh, smiled at each other and then you know shake hands and off i go and i've had that experience you know far too many times to count with an incredibly diverse array of people um but the I mean, what makes that stand out to me um, is you know, partially how common it is, but secondly, how, I mean, again, we've got a cliche here, but it's just, it's a total stranger seeing a total stranger and saying, hey, you seem interesting. I'm a nice person. I'm going to do something nice for you. And we will try and chat a bit. I personally, as the stranger on the side of the road, will get nothing out of the uh, <laughs> nothing out of the encounter. But you, the kind of the poor, bedraggled foreigner, inexplicably cycling through rural Sudan, um, will get a spot of shade, um, some sugary tea, a little bit of a rest, and then go on your way. And I've I've found that um, uh, the the universality of that has been really heartening. Um, the, the cliche continues because it happens so much more rarely in the kind of the more um, uh, wealthy and developed parts of the world. Um, but I don't think that's a difference in the the humanity or personalities of any people in those parts of the world. I think it's just that um, in the same way that if on the tube in London, you look someone in the eyes, that's, that's a big faux pas. We have just uh, developed rightly or wrongly a system of living whereby we try not to sort of interfere in or impose upon anyone else's lives, uh, you know, as far as we possibly can. Uh, so we're, we're kind of quite gated both literally with the way our homes and communities are arranged and personally with the kind of shield we put up, the kind of, you know, no eye contact uh, approach to um, operating in, in public that we have a lot of the time, not all the time, of course, if you go into the shop and you buy something, you'll probably look the shopkeepers in the eyes and have a touch of small sore and say thank you and then walk out. But passing people by on the street, we do tend to, you know, avert our gaze and just hurry on, you know, away with our lives. Yeah, like the, the word that came to me was, threat perception or the phrase that came to me was threat perception it's almost like threat perception is up but then you think about uh environments that are less westernized less wealthy and there's threat there too a different kind of threat but it's almost like there's um there's conflict in the back of your mind i think when maybe when there's just that many people living together or maybe it's when you have so many possessions and so much to guard that it's worth protecting maybe it's something like that yeah i mean that's interesting the idea of threat perception i also think that you know that comes from both sides as well um you know with the kind of uh with the sort of standoffish manner that we have in public in in britain for example um i think that is as often because we perceive threat as it is that we don't want anyone else to perceive threat within us you know, as as a I'm a I'm a bloke. If I just started talking to someone on the tube, 
um, which you know isn't something I've never done, I should say. But if I'm talking to a man, maybe they'll feel threatened. If I'm talking to a woman, maybe they'll feel it's inappropriate. That you know, there's 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 so many uh, things that we are sort of neurotically aware of. Um, but you know, for I won't say for good reason, but with reason, um, perhaps because we spend a lot of time thinking about the. You know, we 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 live in a I, you know, I live in London. It's a massive metropolis. There are so many people here and in a place with, what, 9 million people or so, um, that hasn't really existed in history. So we are, as a, as a sort of community, we are trying to work out how to cope with that. And it seems the way to cope with that is to not have a community beyond your immediate circle um, or people who, you know, literally uh, provide the food that you buy, you know, and, mm. and sort of, you know, a smaller um a smaller sort of community within the wider community. I find it really interesting that you, when you're away, you're paddling illegally across Tibet or cycling how many miles, or you're putting up what is it, first ascent in Kyrgyzstan. Like you're doing these things in very remote places, a lot of it. And then you base yourself out of London, which seems like a like an apparent juxtaposition. Is there logic there? Is it just the convenience for work? Is it community, family base? Um, it's a bit of all of the above, really. Um, I have some family here. Uh, I have uh, probably, the, you know, the greatest concentration of, of my friends live in this city, which is, you know, is important. Um, it is convenient. It does make sense for work. Um, but at the same time, you know, I, I like it. And as long as I have a, uh, a balance, as long as I have those escapes and there is the kind of the yin to go with the yang, then, then I, you know, I really like it here. There's, there's lots to do. I, of course, I like getting out as well. Um, and that's something, you know, at, at a later point where work might not dictate to quite such an extent where it makes sense for me to live between exploring uh then then that might well uh change where i where i sort of locate myself i'm also part of a pair which has um you know some effects as well of course uh, you know you can't make decisions by yourself in that in that case um but yeah no I, I really like living in london but at the same time i am someone i count myself lucky to be able to kind of live here on my own terms in that i um a, most of my work is working from home um, I don't have to sort of, you know, muddle in on the tube during rush hour or anything. When I go from A to B here, I tend to be on a bicycle come all weathers. Um, and so I get the benefits of the people here and all the things there are to do without most of the downsides that most people seem to find in London. Yeah, that's a very different experience of London to a lot of people, the not having to commute, not having to get yes. into that kind of squished into a million sweaty armpits um which i've done i've been there when, um, when i do occasionally have to get the tube in summer particularly i find myself really resenting it because it's just it's unbelievably hot uh, it's really loud you know I, I think you know when you don't take it regularly you forget just quite how loud it is um and then you go and turn up whatever you've got in your earphones to try and mask that and then you get off the tube and your ears are ringing and you realize you've just been blaring you know you've been adding decibels to decibels um yeah so i I don't uh, i don't love the uh you know the the sort of the requirement to use public transport when it's busy uh i do count myself very lucky to not have Mm. that requirement have you found a ratio that works you of time away to time to time at home um that's always changing really uh I mean, my sort of 
pretty much as soon as I, I, you know, I left education, worked in a job for a while, but then very quickly went away for several years. And after I came back from that for the first few years after getting back, I was probably away about half the year and in Britain about the other half of the year. Uh, nowadays, it's probably more in the kind of two thirds, one third uh, region. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't have a particular sort of rule, you know, rule of thumb for that. It's uh, it's probably formed by, you know, things that come up as well as just the, you know, the length of time required to undertake the projects that I fancy doing. Um, yeah. yeah, I'm yet to land on a system. Yeah, two-part question. Firstly, what is an adventure to you? And secondly, what is a good adventure to you? Interesting distinction. Um, an adventure to me is probably different when I think about it at different times. In the same way that you've caught me after sunset on a wintry night where I'm, you know, sort of reflective and probably a little bit morose. <laughs> um, whereas if we were doing this interview at three o'clock in the afternoon in the summer, it would probably be a lighter, um, you know, sort of uh, less I think you're just adapting to my tone as well. The fact that I can't have small talk. Um, but an, an adventure to me today is uh, going somewhere different with not always but often or usually with people who are different um so i tend to and i'm totally aware that everyone has their own definition of of adventure um i tend to think of going you know going to climb uh i tend to use the term adventure for getting away somewhere alien um so if i'm going to go up to the lake district and do some rock climbing for a week or something i don't tend to think of that as adventure i tend to just think of that as fun that's sort of maybe for me adventure is type two fun and uh the just the fun type one fun stuff i don't quite see as maybe there's an element of suffering in adventure i suppose is what i'm landing on here um what's a good adventure is one where uh it's not too much suffering <laughs> um you know there are the i mean you're i'm sure you'll be aware some of the types of fun type one type mm-hmm. two uh and then there is type three which is not even fun with hindsight you know you don't look back particularly fondly on it um and for me a good adventure would be something that falls in the kind of the comfortable survivable band of type two fun yeah type 2.2 2, something like that yeah, yeah. exactly that <laughs> okay do you have any stages i as well i went into this thinking i want to make some really like explicit actionable practical steps for this podcast and we've talked about who you believe you really are um so like to, to get some practical steps out of this do you have like steps systems that you use in planning a trip away an expedition loosely yes um but not formally i don't have a checklist what are the essential um, components of that, the non-negotiables? Um, I suppose that, I mean, the, the main, the main considerations beforehand are, uh, funding, how are you going to pay for it? Uh, what you need kit, um, getting there, which, you know, 
is, is there's logistics, but it also falls under how are you going to pay for it? Um, and how are you going to survive it? You know, so safety, I guess. Um, but it, I mean, those are the very basic things, but it, it really depends on what you're doing. You know, if you are going somewhere to climb a mountain with a friend, then that's quite streamlined because you've got a sort of a, um, a nicely, easily definable target. Get to the mountain, get up the mountain, get down alive, come home. Whereas if you're going somewhere to spend time in a place and learn about it or learn about people or, you know, any element of sort of investigation to what you're doing, for example, then it's a little bit more nebulous. And that might involve, you know, more kind of playing it by ear. Um, So planning adventures, I guess my steps are always changing and always adapting to what the particular journey is. Um, But I've always found... I've always found it to be a relatively commonsensical process. Um, I don't think I have any um, massively abstract sort of components thrown in there. I don't. Um, I don't necessarily go in for kind of sitting in a darkened room, visualizing um, you know certain outcomes or scenarios or anything like that. Um, I, I tend to work out what I need to do to do what I want to do. If that doesn't sound too trite. Yeah. Where does it start with? Does it start with? Actually, I'm gonna, I'm not even going to lead you on it. Where do these things start? Uh, where does the seed for an for an idea yeah. start? Do you mean? Yeah. Um, that, I mean that changes as well. I guess it used to be uh, just kind of a something. <laughs> yeah, somewhere in the nexus between whimsy and dreaming. You know, like I I want to go somewhere interesting and have a good time figure that out but then once i started doing this for a for a career for a profession that definitely has some impact because i need to work out what is going to be uh satisfying doable challenging as well as kind of um, professionally viable or professionally you know useful um so the to, well, to take you know my sort of earliest example, I suppose the 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 start of trying to the start of cycling for four years around Asia and Africa was wanting to travel for a long time as cheaply as possible, and having read and heard about other people doing long trips on bicycles, it seemed like a very cheap, fun way to do that, and so I went and did it um, with. Uh, my latest journey, um, I, about five weeks ago, I got back from a couple of months in Papua New Guinea and I went out there because I'd been before. I was hooked by it. I found it really fascinating and I'm going to write a book about the country, but I wanted to spend some more time in country to hike to some sort of remoter villages in the highlands and sort of you know, refresh my memory, see more, learn more and then write about it. So that seed was slightly more pragmatic, I suppose. Um, that you know the start of that journey was slightly more pragmatic is there like because you're you're essentially balancing i'm guessing what's going to be viable in terms of business which is interest and something captivating to the outside world with personal interest and what's meaningful to you how do you balance that danger of like 
oh, I've gone to Papua New Guinea and I'm um, dancing my pants on a TikTok video because someone will pay me the, pay me the money to do it. And or like, or I'm doing this like really flashy YouTube video where it's like loads of fast moving changes of scene. Like, how do you manage that balance? Um, I think for me, the key has been to be too old and too stiff to understand how TikTok works um, or Snapchat or any of these things. Um, I mean, I, I barely manage Instagram. Um, but I mean, more seriously, I think I have a fairly non-negotiable set of personal boundaries of what I am and I'm not willing to, to do. And I'm arguably to, you know, to my detriment in some cases, I, I'm sure I could have uh increased or boosted my profile from having a different uh balance of how much of my time i'm willing to spend doing things and how much of my time i'm willing to spend filming myself doing things or uh posting about myself doing things or fiddling around with the i find really difficult interface of instagram on a small phone screen um and i, I don't know if I've thought especially hard about this. I think I have settled quite naturally into a kind of a, a, a compromise whereby I largely do the things I want to do because I find them interesting and feel confident there'll be a decent story to tell afterwards. Because if you find something interesting and you're passionate about it, that will leave you with an interesting story to tell. Whether or not other people will be interested is is a different and harder <laughs> question. Um but yeah, I've never really been tempted to take a more sort of, I've never felt tempted to kind of undermine who I am for the sake of my career, basically. Mm. Yeah, personal values. What are the most, Yeah, go on, sorry, you're about to say something. Oh, well, no, I mean, I, I just, I'm just agreeing, but I, I don't know if it's necessarily even personal values. I just think it's um, comfort. You know, if I don't feel comfortable within myself doing something, then I, I probably don't want to do it. That doesn't seem to carry, for me at least, with feeling physically uncomfortable doing something. You know, I, I, I don't mind feeling physically uncomfortable and suffering. I just don't want to do anything that makes me feel uneasy within myself about myself. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Are there any or what are the most underrated skills that people think about acquiring or should acquire to go and do these kind of things i honestly i don't think it particularly requires skills or at least everyone has different skills that will develop and emerge within themselves when starting to do things like this should they want to do things like this and i'm also not you know suggesting that everyone should go and do you know crazy things out there in the wild um but uh i mean if you want to call it a skill then i, I don't think it's a skill but perhaps the most important thing is if you want to do something decide what it is and then just set a date to start it um the the skill to actually do it um not in every case you know if you charge off without any preparation to antarctica then you 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 know you, you might not be coming back um but uh in most cases you will f figure out the the problems and the skills required along the way and adapt to the situation um whereas saying i'm going to do something someday 
probably means it won't happen. You know, someday in inverted commas is not uh, an identifiable date in your calendar. Um, mm. It can be indefinitely put back. Whereas uh, fixing a date to start doing something, whether that is the spring cleaning or washing the patio or climbing a mountain, um, fixing a date to do it means it'll happen or at least will be significantly more likely who, to happen. Who in your life set the example of actually doing the trip and making it happen rather than just pontificating about it? I don't... Well, I do now. When I was younger, I didn't really know anyone who does stuff like this at all, in, in really in any sense. I think the idea of you know, going out for a hike when I was growing up, it wasn't common at all to people I was around. So I kind of got my exposure to this world through reading books. And of course, the majority, not all, but the majority of books within this world are about people who have gone and done those things. Um, and so that kind of by default was, I guess, motivating or inspiring. Which books? Um, uh, I mean, <laughs> uh, you know, endless. Um, when I first started reading kind of uh, adventurous books, you know, you, you start with the kind of the older ones about explorers and stuff like that. And then that slowly changes. And then there was kind of a new wave of adventurers when I was in my sort of teens and twenties who, who started doing sometimes more kind of madcap adventures, but really anything and everything, you know, I loved all the um, books about sailors and navigators and, you know, both fiction and nonfiction. Um, I, th I think the idea of, I mean, it's, this, it's, it's probably the same story with a lot of people, the, the, the kind of, for want of a better word, romanticism of desert sands and, and, you know, glaciers and, Blizzards and ice flows and Shackleton and mm -hmm. Gertrude Bell and all this is is uh, is very um, appealing to yeah. to me at least and I think to a lot of people. Yeah, absolutely. I can't remember the name of the explorer. Um, Tilston, um, Tillman. sailor. Yeah, Tillman. Is it Bill Tillman? Yes, I think yeah. so. I haven't actually read his. I think he did write a book. Um, yeah, he, he's got a ton of books. And if you're after a romantic view of adventure, here's a, the ones like exploring, like sailing around the Cape of South America and refusing any kind of electronic assistance in doing so regularly. Well, regularly, a couple of times losing someone overboard whilst they're on the night shift and just, wow. like, where are they? Um, he was in the kind of the realm of early Everest expeditions. Okay. And then kind of got bored of mountaineering by the sounds of it. And then I want to sail to Greenland and get first sense. And then it just kept on pushing the boundary. But with this wonderful British approach of, I'm going to stick an ad in the Sunday Times and whoever comes out is going to like make up the crew. And sometimes it's a couple of 16-year-olds that really shouldn't be there. And sometimes it's someone who's 30 years his senior who definitely shouldn't be there. And sometimes they sail from the south coast up to scotland on the way to iceland or something and then like half the crew leave and he has to get a new crew and it's like it's this incredible approach to romantic adventure well along those lines two two recommendations i would have is firstly um the kentucky expedition by tor Heyerdahl, which is a similar sort of time frame uh early 50s or late 40s early 50s i think um where these four uh, Norwegians, or I should say, 
three three Norwegians and a Swede, I think, um, just uh, you know build a raft in South America and then just float with a big sail with no means of steering all the way until they land on uh, an island in um, sort of French Polynesia uh, to try and prove the theory that um, the theory that uh, Tor Heyerdahl believed back then that the at least some of the Pacific islands were actually populated via South America, not via the, from, from the West, which has subsequently been disproved by genetic testing uh, that, and then just anything by Redmond O'Handlon, who uh, more on the, 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 the idea you were saying with some of um, uh, Tillman's crew who, you know, shouldn't have been there and ill suited. Um, Redmond is a, uh, an ornithologist and an Oxford Don and is you know with a fantastic pair of big white bushy mutton chops and you know he on various different uh, occasions has just kind of marched off into Borneo or into the sort of the Orinoco basin or into the Congo and just has unraveled and everything possible has gone wrong and he's not cut out for it but he's like excellent and hilarious and you know doesn't really always or ever find what he's looking for but is uh just really enjoyable to travel with nice love that love that what are um two questions i want to ask you firstly what does airag taste like um so airag is the yeah it's the sort of fermented mare's milk um in mongolia and the taste well it's been a while since i've had it but you never forget it uh it <laughs> It's sort of like f- slightly fizzy milk beer, if you can imagine that. Um, it's flat and fizzy at the same time, and it's sort of got that sort of cheesy dairy taste. And then often once you've drunk it, you know, if you've if you've had a, a, an old wine or uh, the dregs of wine, you might sort of you know just sense on your tongue, kind of you know lumps of dregs. Um, it, you can get those, or you often get those from Irag, but um, they uh, are cheesy, mm-hmm. and those are. You're not selling pleasant. it to me. No, no. Um, the other thing they can do is um, they they often will f- ferment it, and then um, they set up a sort of a simple a still, you know, a, a, a liquor still, and they will boil off the alcohol from the irag, which they will collect in a tube and then gather it in a bottle where it condenses, and then you have just the sort of almost pure alcohol uh, from this fermented uh, mare's milk, which if it's just fresh and hot and you have a little bit and sip it, it's sort of, it's, it's kind of passable. It's a bit like sake or something. Um, but I've learned on several occasions that if they, if the, the kind nomads you meet somewhere out on the, the steppe in Mongolia present you with a bottle of that and send you on your way, either say no to it, but you can't do that because that's rude. Or drink it all immediately, but you can't do that because you then won't be able to leave. Or don't drink it later because once it's turned cold, it is unspeakably rancid. It's really, really, really hard to stomach. Um, you, you, you know, you will not get much past sniffing it if you open it a couple of days later. God, there's something about very niche alcohols. Have you ever, like in France, there's in like, I think it's what, sort of Savoy Valley, like Marc de Savoie, it's the most it comes in like sarsen's vinegar that kind of bottle right. and it's you can only find it very like very very like 
local shops. You're not getting it in a French casino. Like you're getting it in those weird little shops in France. And it's the only thing that I've ever had. I'm not sure even what it is, but the fact it comes in a non-see-through bottle, um, (laughs) you, it's the only one that I've ever had. I've been completely sober, had a a sip, like not even a shot of it, a sip, and it was just instant hurling. But like niche alcohols from remote places, uh, like there's something about them. Ah, this man, um, this is a long time ago. This is when I was about 20, I think. Um, I was, was driving a car from Mongolia to Britain just in a rush in two weeks as a favor to a friend. Um, and uh, I, I managed to pick up a uh, essentially a hitchhiker, a sort of 50-year-old short Cornish man who happened to be a mechanic, which was ideal oh, because this car was knackered already. But he was also narcoleptic, so I couldn't let him drive. Um, so he would sit in the passenger seat in and out of sleep. Um, but we broke down outside Irkutsk and we were perhaps 30 miles outside Irkutsk and we were on the side of the road. I mean, the wheel came off the car. It was quite a serious sort of breakdown. Uh, and the car's uh, wishbone, I think it's called, had, had, was, was buggered. Um, and so we were on the side of the road trying to fix this with the car jacked up. And this man in a little old sort of Ulyanov minivan pulled over and he spoke a little bit of English and he had a look and we, we knew what was wrong, but to try and, try and explain that was hard, but he had a look and he said, Oh, you know, I can fix this. Um, we need to go and get the part in town. I was like, fine. So I, I waited with the, the van while um, Chip, this mechanic went with the man into Irkutsk, you know, 30 mile drive, went to a scrapyard, looked around, found a car that had this part, um, took it out, paid the scrapyard owners pittance for it. Then he drove Chip all the way back out to us, helped us fix it and then we were you know good to go and you know we I, you know I said thank you you know like um, can I can I give you something this is incredibly generous um and he said no no I must give you something you know I'm the host here um and I was like well <laughs> that's not you know but fine thank you and he presented us with this bottle and it was um you know it was, I, I I couldn't read um Cyrillic letters back then but the only thing on it that I could recognize was the you know Roman numerals uh, well, not Roman numerals, sorry, just the numbers, 80, 80%. And I saw that and I thought, oh, God, 80%. And I said to him, you know, this is very strong. He says, no, 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 it's stronger than that. I made it myself. <laughs> and I said, what did you make it from? And he said, potatoes and wood. And it was Ooh. just some sort of, you know, mad Siberian moonshine this guy had made, um, which was very... It wasn't especially unpleasant. It was just incredibly strong. But that was my little sort of, you know, um, rocket fuel to wake me up uh, during the kind of 18-hour drives. You know, we had, I think we had seven a seven-day transit visa to get 4,000 miles across Russia uh, from Mongolia to Latvia, to the Latvian border. Um, and so that was done. Uh, I, I mean, I wasn't drunk driving. I wasn't powered by this stuff the whole way. But just a little sniff of that certainly, like, yeah. perks you up a little bit. Yeah, it opens um, the eyeballs. Yeah, particularly when, you know, on those long drives on the empty Siberian roads, one morning I d- drove for, I think, an hour and a half before we saw the first vehicle. And that was the point at which I realized I'd been driving in the left-hand lane, the wrong lane, for an hour and a half. And this truck was bearing down on me and quickly changed lanes. Um, yeah, that was a, an odd an odd journey. Yeah. What are underrated countries, places that really should get more visitors? Um, I would say Central Asia um the the stands um although they are increasingly getting um visitors there are slightly more on the you know the consciousness on the you know on 
on the map for uh, for foreigners um kyrgyzstan in particular uh for the the kind of the the wilderness the you know the countryside uh and then uzbekistan for its incredible uh i mean the the old timurid cities you know you drive for hours through the desert and then you get off at somewhere like samarkand where there's this incredible architecture from hundreds of years ago that's just truly mind-blowing um so places like that uh iran is probably the most friendly and enjoyable place i've ever been to sadly complicated and very hard to visit and also very different for men and women to visit particularly if traveling solo um i mean i've spent a bit of time recently in papua new guinea which is not necessarily the easiest or most enjoyable place to travel but is probably the most interesting place i've ever been why um most of the time I've spent there has been up in the highlands, so the sort of mountainous spine that runs through the middle of the island. And until the 1930s, or in some areas as late as the 1950s, there were parts of the highlands that were just totally cut off and you know undiscovered by outsiders. But uh, people lived there, and people lived in intact, untouched Stone Age societies. Um, that had just kind of survived through into modernity. Um, there's this guy, Bernie, who I met up in a city called Mount Hagen. Um, and Bernie's dad was a uh, Irish emigrant, uh, immigrant to Australia who had flown a light aircraft in 1932 or three, I think, uh, over the highlands, uh, over the Wagi Valley, this area where Mount Hagen today is. Um, his 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 dad and his two uncles have flown this plane over before anyone was believed to live up there. It was thought to be uninhabited. Um, they were gold prospectors, and they saw this huge. Um, the, you know, they, they saw there was definitely signs of you know civilization and cultivation down there. So they mounted this big expedition with hundreds of bearers and porters, and it took them six weeks or something to slowly march their way up and over these kind of you know incredibly um, rugged terrain up to this this area where they found there were about a million people living just isolated and and those you know that civilization up there they didn't know that they were in the highlands of an island with a coast let alone that that beyond that coast was this is sort of you know massive interconnected world that they were not part of um and bernie's mother was the daughter of the chieftain in one of those tribes um so that uh i I believe his dad had took several wives to be honest um but that sort of meeting of and not clash of civilizations but that merging of civilizations from you know in some sense the stone age and the modern age i mean that'll never happen again i don't think or certainly not in that manner um and just things like that i found absolutely in, in, in um, incredible and there are still uh there are still so many facets of life and and society up there that uh hold um you know, more than just traces of that uh, that sort of you know relatively recent existence sounds incredible give me two moments for us to just get the dog out because he's crying least resilient robust dog you could ever find <laughs> been alone for two minutes well thank you for your time I really appreciate it. Um, it's lit a fire in me to go and go on a sweet adventure and to double down on my prep for my next one. And I hope it's done the same for the audience. Where can people follow along with your adventures, read your writing and that kind of thing? Um, 
my website is cwexplore.com, Charlie Walker Explore. Uh, my Instagram and Twitter handles are at cwexplore. Um, if people want to read more, um, I've written two books, Through Sand and Snow and On Roads That Echo. Uh, they're also available on Kindle and Audible, uh, narrated by me. Um, so those are the places to check me out. Uh, but thank you very much for having me. It's been a lot of fun. Absolute pleasure. Absolute pleasure.